to Women's Health, Wisdom, and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info at To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larinawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute for a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Kali Young about her latest literary work, Mediated Massage Noir, Erasing Black, Women, and Girls' Innocence in the Public Imagination, The Four Misogynistic Tropes That Move Black Women and Girls Further Away from Innocence, and my favorite chapter of the book, The R. Kelly Chapter. Let's join the conversation. Massage Noir, the dislike of contempt for an ingrained prejudice against black women. It demonstrates how sexism and racism manifest in black women's lives to create intersecting forms of oppression. This term was coined by womanist Moya Bailey in 2010 to address the specific racialized sexism directed toward black women in American popular visual culture and digital spaces. Today's guest is a podcast first. She's super special. She is not only the author of one of the dopest, most enlightening books I've read in a long minute, but also she just happens to be my sister in love. Kalima he is here today talking about her latest literary work, Mediated, Mediated Noir, Erasing Black Women and Girls' Innocence in the Public Imagination. And if the title grabs you, you're in for a treat. Kalima, please introduce yourself and your cat and tell us... <laughs> Mediated Massage Noir's origin story. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Lorena. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm a Baltimore native. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Electronic Media and Film at Towson University in Baltimore. Okay. Um, I teach uh, video, uh, I teach narrative production, okay. and I also teach African-American cinema and also gender in film. Um, my background, my PhD is in American studies and, um, my research focus, um, as an American studies scholar is, um, the impact of race and gender-based trauma on black identity development and black cultural consumption and cultural production. So I'm always looking at the way 
trauma, race and gender-based trauma is impacting the way that black people create identities for themselves and communities and networks for themselves, how they create knowledge with one within with one another. Right. And I'm also always, as a media scholar in a media department, I'm always filtering it through and how do we consume or create media mm-hmm. that is reflective of that journey and or the problematic parts of those journeys. So that's where my... Um, my central focus is it's like how do we tell these stories about ourselves right? right how do we do how do we talk gender based violence how do we talk race based trauma and how does that impact what we're actually making what we're actually consuming and how we do it right so um oh yeah and my cat is president of the united states giblets hauser young he ran for office in 2015, 2016, and he won. I don't okay. know what other people was doing in 2016, <laughs> but my cat and my other cat have been the president and vice president since 2016, and they're going to keep on being the president. And they're so, going to keep doing it, running unopposed. <laughs> they're going to do what they do. They're like, going to take the whole national budget and put it towards finding the red dot. they like, we got to find that. That's the priority. You know, like, so just... You asked for the intro to Cat. Yes. Um, he was there. He was there at the yeah. moment. So I was like, yeah. if we're going to do it, we're going to do it all. <laughs> he's going to keep, he's, he's going to come back because he's okay. nosy as hell. And, you know, but right now he's on his throne, which is literally my camera bag. Okay. Anyway, that's anyway. his throne in my office. So, right. um, <laughs> so the origin story for the book mm-hmm. is, so it was born out of a paper I wrote for the, a paper I wrote for the National Women's Studies Association Conference in 2018. Okay. And um, a big chunk of my dissertation research has been, um, was looking at um, black people's witnessing practices. Mm-hmm. So trying to understand how we actually witness trauma and how we um, focus or what we see when we're watching the screen. What are empathetic ways that we can list, watch trauma unfold on screen? And I'm talking viral videos and stuff like that. Right. So when I wrote this paper, I was in the midst of doing my research where I was looking at, I observed 20... Um, viral videos, videos that became viral of black people's encounters with the police Um, and watching them in a specific way to sort of see how can we actually empathize with it. I was doing this thing called embodied image schema analysis. I know that sounds all nerdy and shit like that, but that's what I was doing. I love it. I love it. I love it. I can nerd out on that. (laughs) Right. So it's like, it's a way of watching that comes from actually narrative classical Hollywood. But I decided to take this way of watching and apply it to viral videos. So you watch a video six different ways. So on one way, you are looking directly at the screen and you're seeing what is happening in the center of the screen. Then you're looking at what is happening on the peripherals of the screen. Mm -hmm. Then you watch the video again and you're listening to the sound. Then you watch the video again and you're watching it for movement, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this layered way of rewatching it. And in the midst of writing, watching um, the interactions between Dejera Becton and Eric Casebolt, so the McKinney, Texas pool party mm-hmm. uh, incident, right. I was noticing what was happening with my viewing. I was noticing what was happening with my 
who I was empathizing with, how I was watching it unfold in front of me. And when I was asked to write a paper to be on this panel, and she said, I want to focus on different ways that we operationalize the concept of massage noir. Because Mm -hmm. my colleague, Antonio Randolph, um, who's down at Duke, um, she was focusing on massage noir and hip hop. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write a paper based on this sort of viral experience of watching the McKinney pool party. And after I presented that paper, I was approached by um, the folks from Rowan and Littlefield, one of the editor acquisitions editors who was at the conference, because you know how they always come to conferences and look at papers (laughs) and jazz. And she's just like, do you have a larger project that's around this? And Mm -hmm. I was like, I got some thoughts and <laughs> and that's sort of the origin story of how the project came to be but it was from doing that paper okay. and um really understanding the rhetoric that was occurring as the news media and other viewers were refusing refusing to see that experience as sexual violence wow. and as gender-based violence and in my gut as i was watching that little fort what 14 year old I think at the time mm-hmm. 14 year old girl in a yellow bikini, bikini. Yep. being straddled by an armed police officer in his 40s and yep. people could not read that as sexual violence and I was mm-hmm. like what the fuck is going on mm-hmm. with how people are seeing little black girls yeah. and from that I just I just went to town you went in you went in I, I went in I was like you know what <laughs> we Here don't we do go. this. Let's I'm do it. Go up in there, <laughs> right? And that—that's the origin story of the book. <laughs> I love it, and it was, and it's. I had that imagery even before I started reading the book. I have had that imagery so many different times because it's one of those things that you can't unsee once you see it the first time, right. and then you don't want to see it again because it's too much. It's just right. too much, too much. So when black women are depicted as uglier, deficient, hypersexual, and unhealthier than their non-black counterparts, innocence is lost. We can immediately conjure up images associated with the word innocence and rarely ever will a black girl, let alone a black woman, be a part of that imagery. From the sassy black woman to the hypersexual Jezebel to the ever popular angry black woman to the strong black woman, these tropes expertly woven into the popular media contribute to making society a more hostile place for black women. Speak to us about how these tropes inherently move black girls and women further away from innocence. Well, I think about it from two different perspectives. So first I like, uh, we have to unpack what we mean when we say innocence, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking about children, right, often innocence is something that's associated with children. And little, um, we see, we have two approaches of seeing children. We can see them as completely pure and not touched by outside influences and our job is to protect them so that they continue to be like not influenced by outside vices or we have innocence as it relates to trying to control children because people sometimes see children as one giant id like they're just one giant crazy thing that you gotta contain Right. So this conversation of containment and or keeping something unsullied just never applies to black children and black little girls in the first place, because black young women, black, black girls and black women are always set up as the abject. They're Mm. always when you think about the abject, right? You have an abject figure so that you can say this thing is what what normal isn't. 
Mm-hmm. And then you get to base your identity on all the things that you are not that. Like we always as a society need to have this is the othered because that makes us feel normal. It makes us feel like, aha, but it makes us feel like we are the normal and they're the border of the abnormal. Wow. And I, when I look at things and I look at cultural texts and I look at rhetoric um, in many different kind of media spaces, I'm always seeing how that idea of black women and girls as singularly other, an abject figure, ends up translating into, and this is why white little girls and white children are the things that have to be protected because these things are always, always sullied. Black girls and women are always sullied. I don't know if that made as much sense, but here's another way to think about it. Um, And I'm going to do it from a film person perspective because I'm a nerd like that. There's rarely ever a horror movie about a possessed child where that possessed child is black. Mm. Right? Okay. Because one of the ways that horror cinema works, especially when it comes to like the demon child, the possessed child, is this idea of how horrifying it is for something that is so innocent to actually Mm -hmm. be spewing hot nonsense from the devil. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Linda Hamilton. (laughs) That kind of thing. Right. So white kids are always seen as if they get corrupted, this is the horror. Like, no, Uh because they're always la, 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 la. But black kids and especially black little girls are never seen as corruptible because Mm -hmm. they're always inherently corrupt because they're always positioned as the abject thing, the thing with which you compare yourself against to see if you're normal. So that's how it ends up playing out in our cultural rhetorics. And that ends up meaning that little black girls are not seen as little in the first place. Like black women are always seen as a font of sexuality. If you add the fact that little black girls are also never seen as unsullied, Mm -hmm. right? You have policies and practices in place that position them to be incarcerated earlier, to be dragged out and seen as older than they are and to have uh, Eric Casebolt sitting on their back, Mm -hmm. to be kicked out of school and disciplined under zero tolerance policies for simply speaking their minds or calling out power in some way, shape or form. And that's the way these things impact black women and girls' lives. Wow. And it's sad because like, as you went through each one, I was like, one, I'm I'm afraid of my own shadow. So horror movies are something that I steer away from, but oh. I've been watching, no, I've been watching a couple um, that are classified as horror movies. And I, as you said that, I was like, yeah, I don't ever see that as happening. No, I don't ever see that um, as a theme, at least in the beginning of a, of a film. It's never, it's never anybody other than a white child or someone who has something like an untouchable type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, associated with them. So those parallels are definitely obvious. Right. So why do you believe that massage noir is so often overlooked in feminist discourse? I think that, well, we've got the classic issue of racism and white supremacy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which undergirds everything. Everything. <laughs> right. So you got that hanging out just like, that's just like the, the layer of mayonnaise or mustard. On the bread. <laughs> right. It's going to be there. Right, it's already right. there. It's already there. It's baked you always in. got that condiment. That condiment right. always on your plate. <laughs> right. So I think that's a part of it. 
I think also when we think about social justice and activism, right, and fem, uh, the, the uh, women's studies, the field of feminist, re, re, uh, feminist um, scholarship right. is activist scholarship, right? Mm-hmm. It really is about moving the margins to the center. To win things, we have to often make things as uncomplicated as possible. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to like whittle something down to be like, this is the egregious part. Mm-hmm. And if we address and use the structures to like address this thing, then we've gotten justice. Right. Black women are impacted by so many avenues of oppression yep. that it is really, really Oftentimes people are too tired, too lazy, or too focused on the end goal to create or bring an intersectional approach to it. Because if you're going to really focus on making sure that you're doing social justice in your theory, in the classroom, and out in the streets, you have to be able to hold multiple truths. And often for justice in our systems to work, it's like, you got to say, no, this is the one truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can write a legislation around it or make a policy or do a campaign around this one thing. Right. So naturally, the needs of black women gets assumed by the decision to mm-hmm. this is how we've got to tackle an issue. Right. And I think a third part of man, we could talk about this. Forever, but I think a third <laughs> part of it is so we have the white supremacy that underlays everything. We've got yeah. the need for social justice movements to focus on one thing that they can grasp so they can get it done. Right. And the other part is that we have a very, very hard time um, reckoning with history. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. it makes it hard to sit in something and no, it makes it hard to move to to sit in things that are uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to sit. Nobody wants to sit in their own shit. Nobody. No, nobody wants no. to hang out in their own poops. Like no, no one wants to just <laughs> hang out there. Right. Um, and because we don't like to think about history, we don't like to think about time as something that's layered and not linear. Mm-hmm. We want to just get to the win. Right. Without having to sit in the uncomfortable idea that justice is always long and it's always layered and it's always complicated and to know that someone's always going to be left out of a part of your movement as you're battling to get that one thing done right so i don't know those are generally my thoughts on the matter yeah and it's again multifactorial because it isn't just one thing Uh it isn't just one avenue it isn't just one problem to solve because we have sexism we have racism we have classism we have all the isms and then all the other stuff that goes along with it and just gets dragged along um for the ride and trying to again like you said just address things and even i look at this from a reproductive justice lens Mm. there's too many other there's too many other isms that can't be at- attached to just this one concept right to think that we're going to move the needle and it, attaching them and then trying to address them all at one time mm-hmm. is virtually impossible as well right especially right. with limited resources and advocacy right and then who has the resources how are mm-hmm. they doling out the resources <laughs> and whose body is seen as valid enough to be protected and safe right mm-hmm. right yeah. And oh yeah, and this is and this is where you said I could talk about this all day, but we won't do that. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. We have to do oh that over God. some coffee, uh, right, right? We are in the same family now, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs>
So how have black women utilized social media platforms to confront misogynoir in courageously effective ways? There are multiple ways. Um, Moya Bailey, you know, who coined, as you said, who coined the term and concept of misogynoir. She has an entire book about um, digital uh, misogynoir transformed. And she looks mm-hmm. at these digital spaces where black women and trans and queer activists have used social media to provide counter narratives. Right. right? So one of the things that black women and girls and uh, non-binary black women, uh, non-binary folks, sorry, mm-hmm. that was ridiculous. Yes. You can fix that in the, in the thing right okay. All right. Um, <laughs> the whole, the slew of all of us um, is, is, um, this counter narrative use of digital media. It's just like, all right, so this comes out, there's something that's out there in the world. There's a counter to it. Like, no, Mm -hmm. we're going to elevate a larger, stronger perspective. We're going to create safe spaces, safe digital spaces where we can do activism. We're going to turn a visual meme and turn it on its head in order to Mm -hmm. use activism to get those spaces to in order to change the way people are seeing contemporary issues i feel like uh black women and girls in a digital space have always been seeing that as has have often used that as the opportunity for counter narrative the opportunity for organizing the opportunity to take a hashtag and really succinctly tell folks what a movement is all about like right. something as simple as say her name mm-hmm. right yeah. <laughs> right to be able to use these digital platforms to find pithy smart relevant and fast moving ways to shift the narrative yeah um which is a beautiful beautiful thing at the same time not all black women, girls, and those who are identify with the black feminine use or access digital media. Right. Right. So there's right. an entire swath of folks who, when folks are doing their message making, when they're doing their activist organizing, when they're creating counter narratives to like injustices that are happening in the world or elevating it, which is the way that black women, girls, and those identify with black fem- the black feminine have been using digital spaces. There's a whole swath of folks who have no access to that. Right. We think about the internet as this, bu- this big contemporary space that levels the playing field but Mm-mm. the digital doesn't layer the play, playing field the digital digital and i write about this in the book the space of the digital is still got the same mayonnaise and mustard mm-hmm. the design of it the algorithms the folks who are choosing to elevate one piece of let one piece of dialogue to the other are yeah. all a part of the damn mustard and so, it's still part of an access issue because not everybody has access to high speed internet right? And, or the kind of internet that is going to be needed to, you know, take part in these, you know, discourses and yeah, or to not be everybody on has the that. damn media all daggone day. Oh, who wants to right? be? Exactly. Right. So <laughs> it's just like there are elders who can inform what we do. There are younger people that can inform what they do. There are working class folks who can inform what is going on. But if you continue using technology and these structures that are inherently white supremacist, you're always going to leave someone out by design, by design, by literal algorithmic design. 
by design. Yeah, it's part of the play. So tell us more about the express need for the creation of a black feminist or a womanist media studies framework. Um, so I argue about that in the book because the frameworks for analyzing media, analyzing the digital one, again, it goes back to like, well, this technology is white supremacism was built on that. That's one. But also the way that black women and girls and those who identify with the black feminine navigate and use digital spaces and media to advocate for themselves, to write their own stories, to write their own narratives, to call attention to really layered issues. There aren't enough, there isn't enough theory. There isn't theory that's big enough to hold the layers of blackness. Mm -hmm. Right? So my feelings are, it's just like, we need a new sort of black media, black feminist, womanist media theory space so that we can really delve into the layers of memes, the layers Mm -hmm. of digital activism, the layers of how black women and girls are seeing themselves and forming their idea of what this means when Mm -hmm. in the digital spaces that we use so much in the spaces where black women are curating and creating the trends and creating the fashion styles and all of Mm -hmm. these things, but there's no tools that are coming from the world of academia that analyze this particular new frontier. And yeah, the internet's been around for like 30 some years, but it's still a new space. Mm -hmm. And there isn't enough theory in these spaces to hold the layers of black women and how we interact in those spaces and how we use those spaces. So I think until there's like a concentrated field of study that's really looking at black feminist media study scholarship, we're going to continue memifying Breonna Taylor while erasing her. Yeah. We're going to continue not being able to see and understand gender-based violence when the next Jira Becton is pulled down by cops. We're going to continue to have our own scholarship stolen by white women and stolen by white men who are using black women's voices, scholarship as avatars to make money off of. Right. Right. Yes. So there needs to be a larger field of study where we can look at the layered ways that blackness operates in digital space that has woman, women and girls in its center in order to truly explain how we see and how we consume. Yes. You know, all of that, all of that. And I think it's even as I read your book, I was like, I've never read anything that looked and examined things in this way. And I saw so many overlaps between you know, the reproductive justice books that I had written in that, yes, there are too many layers to, and we're not a monolith, so you just can't like throw this on it and hope it sticks because it won't. And it doesn't move the needle any, just like giving lip service to it, but no having no actionable, intentional Mm -hmm. modes to navigate this not just for the advocates not just for the activists but for those who are actually living and it's their lived experience exactly and I think it's I think it's so challenging to even conceptualize how like you said one piece of legislation is supposed to 
address all of this mm-hmm. when it's like you are addressing the tip of the iceberg, but there's a glacier, mm-hmm. <laughs> a glacier that has been eons in forming and you are just addressing this little tiny ice iceberg. And another, another thing that I think about when I think about the creation of a field of study, right? Is like, if something is created in the universe like academia, it lives in the world of academia. And it literally mm-hmm. takes at least 30 years, 20 to 30 years, for something to move out of academia into the public sphere. People were right. not saying the words intersectionality mm-hmm. 10 years ago, though that term was coined in 1989. So it right. takes such a long time for theory to come out of the academy and to sink into our everyday ways of being and thinking, right? Mm-hmm. People are like, oh my God, where's all this transactivism coming from? Well, there's been transactivism that's been going on since the 1990s. And now mm-hmm. we're finally, it's out of the academy. Disability right. studies is out of the academy and into our lex- our, our lexicon. lexicon. So we're going to mm-hmm. tell you, Beyonce, to take spaz off your album. Don't use the word, <laughs> sis. Right. Right. So it takes so freaking long for theory yeah. to come into to catch, our yeah. to come into our everyday that we gotta yeah. start working on this shit for black women right now. Yeah. Cause it's gonna take twenty years for people yeah. to actually start doing something right. Like to eventually get to it. Right? It's like there's a long <laughs> game involved. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm so urgently calling for it in the book. Cause I'm like, dude, it takes so damn long to get it yeah. out of the academy and into the streets. We got to start now. And I think, again, you just said something so poignant is the long game. And I feel like our fair shaded, melanin deficient counterparts <laughs> know how to play that long game mm-hmm. because they can see how that long game has longevity and will continue to literally keep us behind the eight ball. Exactly. Always. They can always, always. be a couple steps ahead. They can always be a always couple, steps, a couple ahead. steps ahead. And whether it be fashion, whether it be money, whether it be, we want instant, we want now mm-hmm. and not thinking about that long game. What does that mean? Not just for your children. What does it mean for your children's children? Right. What, and going on and on. And we just don't have a concept overall about a long game. Right. We want that what is today and realizing what's here today is gone tomorrow. But when you have playing that long game, like you said, you're always at least one step. And given the nature of the beast, probably three to five steps. And when you're playing it right, maybe 10 steps. So whether it be legislation, whether it be policy creation, whether it be just overall narratives, you're they're already ahead. We're just constantly playing catch up, right. and it's like we're and it gets exhausting and it's nauseating exactly. and it's just too much on some days. And that's that cycle of being just completely just overburdened mm-hmm. with some of these things as individuals, as communities as well. It's like one of the things, a big chunk of um another area of interest that's for me and it's in my dissertation and some other stuff and i sort of call my dissertation like an afrofuturist dissertation Uh um because to be black because of the abjectness of like blackness right to be black we're always in time and out of time at the same exact time yes right so (laughs) yes so we can be like so yeah, the long game, we got like, this is just how it works. There's a long game, but know that the work that we do and the time that we are have right now travels back, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. If we stop thinking about it as such a linear progression and understand that it's just things that are building on top of one another, 
right? Yes, you block. and I are right here in this in this space, having this little podcast, doing our kiki, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> At the same time, my great grandmother is in the field picking cotton. Like time, <laughs> yes, like yes. we're in time and out of time because the past will continue to impact everything that we do. So because mm-hmm. that is at the center of our lives, we got to plan the long game. Yeah. And it's so hard. And I I think it's just so hard for people to grasp that progress doesn't come in real time. Mm -hmm. Like the things that I'm working for right now in terms of reproductive justice and making sure there's access and appropriate care Mm -hmm. and affordable care. And, you know, it's adequately meeting the needs. It's not going to come to, you know, fruition tomorrow or next year. Nope. I'll be glad if my daughter gets to see some of the, the efforts that, you know, this cohort, my contemporaries have been working on. Right. Or better yet, if my granddaughter can, you know, get get, get to see a glimpse of that. Right. And but that doesn't mean I stop working because I'm not going to see it. Like, Here you go. I may not see the promised land, but I want my daughter and my granddaughter and her granddaughter to be able to see it. Exactly. And that's what I'm working toward. Right. I think we fall so short of you know, being short-sighted and not seeing that as the long game. Because we want the and, instant win. We want the instant yeah. gratification. And sure enough, if if I'm drowning, I hope somebody instantly jumps into the water and pull my ass out because... Immediately. Do that quick, <laughs> right? So, You're right. So there's a point, right? We got to just be like, right. do that quick. But we also have to be able to hold the both end of the situation too, right? Yeah, learning how to swim, like learning how to get to swimming, you not just waiting for bit. someone to oh. save you. Float, right? doggy paddle, something. Do do something. Something. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It and yeah. it's it's so interesting because you wouldn't be doing reproductive justice if there wasn't black women who were already doing reproductive justice and building a layer of thought and theory. They paving part paving the ways for you to be where you are right now. Right? Amen. And <laughs> <laughs> so we have to understand that all of us, all of us are pavers. We're pavers. And right. it's one of the reasons why I love academia so much, too. And like, mm-hmm. I really wanted to join the world of academia is because, um, one, I like to be able to come up with theory and be like, ha ha, I made new words. That's fun. Right. <laughs> like, come on. That's like ultimate magic making you like, right. yes, that's some potion. I did that. So I it's did like, that. it's witchery. That's one. Right. And I like that part. <laughs> But also, I love the idea that, like, you can lay out a layer and say, huh, here's something. And then somebody right. can look at it and be like, oh, I like this. Mm-hmm. And I want to build on that. Oh, right. I like this. And I want, like, it's such good paving, right? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. it's, so the work that we do right now is so important. It's that tilling. It's that paving. It's getting it there and knowing and being humble and happy that other folks are going to build and build and build built that foundation yes the foundation's been laid but now we had to continue building upon it yeah yeah absolutely the work is never done it's not but like we got work yeah we got work <laughs> so without giving us too many juicy details let's delve into mediated massage noir Chapter one is entitled Viral Massage Noir. Some of the images I see of us being brutalized by the police are impossible for me to look at. How does the existence of these images reflect the larger indifference to black women suffering? And we did touch on that a little bit, but I want you to go into a little bit more detail. Yeah. So I think because of the wiliness of the Internet Mm -hmm. and because I sort of lay this out 
there's black folks are always we're always operating in a society a spectacle and a society of surveillance so in the viral massage and walk um chapter i talk about how the spectacle society which is it's all about what's coming at you it's all about what images are coming into your world and then how you can speak on those images right right we're media makers we're media consumers and because we're always in this process of the making and the consuming and it's always coming and flooding at the same time we don't have enough space to actually have a nuanced view we don't have space right. we don't provide it we don't have enough breathing room to have a nuanced relationship with what we're consuming because right. it's coming and it's so relentless Mm-hmm. So when I think about viral massage noir, I think about that idea of the spectacle is always there and we pull ourselves to the spectacle because we're conditioned to look at the spectacle. We're conditioned to want to consume without having to think. Wow. And then media itself, especially social media, is a space of impression management, right? So we're in social media, we are do it because we are trying to do impression management. Like we Mm -hmm. always want to feel like we're in the know. We always want to feel like we have an opinion. We always want to be there. It's like when someone dies and you like immediately have this desire to do like rip, you know, Alice, blah, blah, blah. Right. You couldn't even breathe. You just had to say like, (laughs) this is how I feel. I need to contribute to the conversation. So it's this like, sort of a need to see that you're in the know and show that you're in your know and to have some kind of impact some kind of words be heard in these social media spaces so the combination of that and then on top of that we have the society of surveillance where blackness is always under scrutiny we're always surveilled in some way shape Mm -hmm. or form we're surveilled in our communities by police officers and blue light cameras are when we're in media spaces, we're surveilled for what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. In the store, we're surveilled for, are you touching the really expensive stuff or are you not? Are you standing too close to it? Are you standing too close to the expensive (laughs) stuff, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, and then we surveil one another. How well is that person doing blackness? How well is that person doing Mm -hmm. who they are, performing their identities? So -hmm. you have those three layers always at play. And with those three layers always at play, it is impossible to actually read black women and girls and what's yeah. happening to them in the digital space. Yeah. Right. Whew. And that's one of the things that I talk about a little bit in the chapter. I think at the end of the chapter, I talk a little bit about the idea of empty empathy mm. and how digital spaces and the world of the viral, that is what it pushes for. It pushes for empty empathy it pushes for speak on it don't analyze it it's Mm -hmm. all about the expediency it's all about being a part of the conversation but it's never about just sitting and witnessing and being uncomfortable and it's never about allowing silence you know um and that's that's that was like definitely one of my takeaways and then of course the giant takeaway of black women and girls in those kinds of spaces is that Black women and girls are always unrapeable. Ooh, say that again. Right? Mm. Like, we're always perceived as always open to the violence and open to sexual abuse and always 
always just a, 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 a sort of sexual. We're always we're always open. The door yeah, is literally. always open. open. So, <laughs> and it's a, it's a combination of that hypersexualized and insatiable kind of trope. Yes, that is like you just she can't get enough. So she can't if she can't get enough, she's always asking for it. Right. And if she's always asking for it, then she can't possibly there can't be any kind of sexual violence or rape or anything because she's always asking for right. it just by her mere presence her mere presence she's always open and ready so then yeah. you watch a video <laughs> of a black woman like i think about the um situation i think it was in waffle house and i think i talk about this in the viral massage and walk uh yeah. thing where like she gets into an argument with the server because the the server she's like this isn't the right of money. This is what isn't what you told us. They call the cops. She gets beat down by the cops as they're trying to arrest her. And she's obviously frightened. She's obviously like freaked out and her shirt gets pulled down and you see her breast exposed. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's trying to cover herself up and the cops won't allow her to cover herself up. Like, <laughs> cause they right. want that imagery. Cause they want, they that. want that imagery. They yes. want that imagery. They want black women to, be in their place and in their place mm-hmm. is supposedly always open. Right. Yes. And, and there's no called... violation big enough to command any type of protection right. or command any type of um, just uh, what's the word in English? Uh, I can't remember it. But anyway, to like uh, any covering any uh, more than just protection, but any modesty, bigger... you know? modesty. Yes. Yeah. That's the word that there's none of that. Right. There is none of that. Like, being like exposed is a part of the cruelty right it's the intention and it's also indicative of not seeing black women and girls and those who identify with the black feminine not seeing them as as i had it at the tip of my tongue um Mm -hmm. (laughs) um it's like not seeing them as full people yeah. Right. Yeah. Seeing them as always something that needs to be surveilled, contained, controlled. Like yeah. our voices are too loud. Our bodies are too unruly. Our response to indignities are not seen as proper for who we are in our station. So it's just right. like if a woman is being like, please, I just want to cover this part up. And the cop is actively being like, no, it's because Mm -hmm. they want that person to be humiliated. And you're not seen as something that deserves a modicum of of modesty or care. Mm -hmm. I wrote this, um, I don't know, about a a year ago. I don't know if you um, remember this viral incident. Well, but there was a young black woman who got into a confrontation with another black woman and she stabbed her like a teenager. And mm-hmm. I wrote this little piece called black girls with knives. And it's just like, because the cops were there and they're like, they killed her. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, what protection does a black girl have around her? There's always the only thing, if there's not going to be people that are going to come in and intervene or be like, Hey, don't hit this young woman or mm-hmm. treat them with care what do we have around us but knives to protect ourselves right (laughs) like that's it there are no other tools being provided to help and make a black girl feel safe in the world Mm -hmm. so sometimes the only only the only protection you have is that knife that's sitting on the kitchen table yeah 
and the cruelty is the point in terms of keeping us in our places like you said in the station that you're in never to assume a different one right never to elevate oneself but to make sure that we completely debase you so that you are not even human right and that you realize that and that the others around you realize that yes this was the intention this was the point and now it'll kind of like calm calm the madness so that you know not to act out ever again don't act up ever again exactly like yeah unruly bodies that need to be controlled and surveilled and consumed and embodied yes there's like all at the same time all at the same time like we want to be black women folks want to be us Mm -hmm. all day long all day long (laughs) but they don't want to see us (laughs) right yeah but they want to get the benefit of it of it but they don't want to deal with the aftermath of us and all the other things that come with being <laughs> right <laughs> all of the other things that come with being just the that's the good stuff yeah wow and the mediated space the digital is that is just the stew that really allows that mm-hmm. to run rampant yeah absolutely i can i can ugh, i can all the visuals that you were just talking about when i go back to them it's like yep i saw that once and once was probably one too many mm-hmm. because you just can't ever get it out of your mind mm-mm, mm-mm. So my favorite chapter, number four, (laughs) speaks into the R. Kelly fallout and and the black community's complicity in blaming the survivors. Yep. So how do you feel this fallout fed into the framing of black girls and women as as adulterated and impure? yeah my favorite chapter my favorite chapter you, you went in you went in i did yes. i did i you did i went in, in such a great way oh, it's such you. a great way <laughs> i think that so much of this has to go back to I, one of the ways that i framed that chapter is the reason that r kelly was able to get away with what he got away with for so long is because so long. he organized and used the conversation of family dynamic mm. right and within the research, uh, within black families, this idea of what your dirty laundry is, how much mm-hmm. it gets aired, how where black girls and women are positioned in terms of how they're supposed to respond to the patriarchy. And one of the <laughs> things about that chapter, as I watched and watched and listened to the ways that people talked and justified um, his behavior for such a long time is they kept coming back to this notion of, yeah, we were a family, Mm. right? (laughs) And we were a family and da, 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 da. And that was the justification to allow him to do what he wanted to do. That was the justification to be like, well, you put yourself in that position, you know, Mm. Um, that's the moment where you don't kick the dirty uncle out of the bar, the family barbecue. Right. And we right. in the R. Kelly circuit circuit, we got to see that writ large over 25 or so years. Like, mm-hmm. oh, look at this family dynamic that is playing. Look at the way that they're using it um, or using this notion of kinship and protection and privacy to basically blame black women and girls who are being exploited. Yeah. And I find that you said the word patriarchy and I find that black men uphold the white man's patriarchy. They carry the water too. Mm-hmm. They carry the water so so because they want to be a part of that mm-hmm. power dynamic, that power structure. So it's almost easier to carry the w- white man's patriarchal water than defend, mm-hmm. protect 
black women and girls. Right. And so often I see that dynamic playing. It makes me sick. But at the same time, there's again, so many different layers to just the upholding this dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're playing the role. We are complicit in this and it's not, we're, we're doing the heavy lifting almost at this point. Right. And when I think about how R. Kelly was able to operate, it was so, he was able to operate the way that he was able to operate because he was the patriarch within their family structure. He provided the money. He provided the lodging for what it's worth. He con- he provided all of the things that people wanted materially. Yep. Right? The, the sustenance, even though it was meager. Mm-hmm. The sustenance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? So as this patriarch within a family dynamic... And this idea that we have to protect our family in some way, shape, or form, black women and girls within those circles were completely destroyed, completely victimized. And that happens on a smaller scale within families, on black families, historically, since the beginning, since, like, since always, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing is also a part of this, and this is where we go back to surveillance, and I don't know if I really talk about surveillance a lot in that chapter, but I think about welfare policies of the 1960s and uh, early 70s and 50s, right? Mm-hmm. And this notion that there's always someone watching you and how your family works, and the reason you don't speak up about abuse or sexual violence is because you don't want to invite outside, i.e. white scrutiny, into your Mm -hmm. family right right? so you handle it in-house or you don't Mm -hmm. handle it at all or you tell girls and women to shush and don't speak up and keep your mouth Mm -hmm. shut because the minute you invite we're always surveilling one another and then the minute Mm -hmm. you invite the outside surveillance in it destroys black life and it destroys Mm -hmm. black families right right So because they were working within that family structure, all of the dynamics that occur when abuse is happening within actual real families, black families, played out in this public sphere. Yeah. On a a long term, long term game. Long term game. Long game. Yeah. And again, between generations, like I remember R. Kelly and Aaliyah and I was like, how old is she? Right. And what? And how? <laughs> what is going on here? And how? And that why? Was why is everybody right? Yeah. And that why is everybody like cool with this? Like, what is what is going on? Exactly. But, to the point that I was like, is, is something wrong with me? Like, is she actually older? Like, what is going exactly. on? That, like, no one's no one's talking about this uh-huh. in the moment. Uh huh. It was made cute, like oh, AJ number to number, and just like it was cutesified mm-hmm. to the point that I was like, well, maybe. Like, am I, mean, I maybe the she's one? not really, right. maybe she's not really that young or she just looks young or maybe he's not really that old. And well, nobody seems to really be bothered by this. Yeah. But then, you know, when the documentary came out and everything else, my thing is, but y'all weren't doing anything in the moment. Mm-hmm. Y'all weren't making any kind of, y'all worried about that money, yep. worried about that dollar yep. and worried about making sure it kept happening. And the fact that Meanwhile, he played back at the into, ranch, he played the little ranch. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like in pl- in plain sight, hiding in plain sight, to the point that it was like, well, maybe maybe I'm off, mm-hmm. or maybe I'm doing too much. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you move on to the next thing. Meanwhile, literally back at the ranch, ranch, 
a whole you know racket is go- going on mm-hmm. like all of it yeah. like literally trafficking in the you know biggest sense of the word yes and nobody's nobody's saying anything the response because it's fed is, into it's fed into the, the thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and it's just like this is a part of um this is another reason for black feminist digital studies because you know like to have a field that's robust enough because when we start feeling the spidey sense of massage noir mm-hmm. right because black yeah. women uh-huh. will feel the spot the spidey sense. Ooh, yeah the, uh, uh, it's coming right. up you're like something something yeah. something there needs to be a field of study that can call that out earlier so that we yes. are not sitting here being like, so are we crazy by seeing, are we somehow unstable mm-hmm. by not seeing, by not seeing this as abnormal? Right. 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 We need more frameworks to validate our understanding and to validate our way of knowing. Mm. Right. So that when the next R. Kelly marries another 15 year old, and mm-hmm. they're playing it for, for ratings and money. There's a robust enough field of conversation to be like, this is some nonsense. Cancel this fool. Handle it. Cancel this fool. Mm-hmm. That's abuse. Right. right. Like yes. that's. And calling it what it is. Calling it exactly. abuse. Calling it rape. Calling it, you know, gender-based violence. Calling it all the things and not cutesying it up to make right. it feel innocent. We need more nimble theory yeah. to handle the nimble way that black women must navigate <laughs> right. these spaces you know what i'm saying right. and that's 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 why we got to keep doing the analysis so that the next Aaliyah yeah. r kelly situation does not allow is not allowed to, to, to gain, gain any, any traction. traction in the black community yeah none none So black womanhood is routinely and systematically devalued and dismissed in ways that white womanhood is not, has not, and probably won't ever be. The experience of existing at that intersection of black and woman is a position that entails oppression from a variety of angles, which we've talked about. So how do we as a whole, as a community, as people become better at recognizing it, naming it, and calling it out for what it is? Mm. I think at the root, at the beginning of all of it, when it's time to call and name, is we have to be able and okay with sitting in what feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. As opposed to immediately responding, right? Mm -hmm. Knee-jerk reaction, right? Which is generally Mm -hmm. how we approach anything that happens in the world. We're like reacting. We need spaces to be able to respond instead. Right. So that when we have critique, it's not adding to just the cacophony of outrage. Like outrage mm-hmm. and outrage feels good. The cacophony right. feels like it's doing something, but the cacophony, if it's not tied with actual literal response, right mm-hmm. is basically impression management noise it's, it's just noise you're just yeah. wow you're you're being loud about something but you're not providing mm-hmm. anything new you all kind of smoke right. but where's the structure like mm-hmm. where's the right 
So I think, and it's clicks and it's likes and it's retweets, exactly. and it's, you know, all those things. And that's how we're measuring, measuring engagement, mm-hmm. how we're measuring all these things with these like faux analytics. But my thing is clicks and likes don't necessarily always translate into action or advocacy right. or policy or anything. You're building something that has, like you said, garnered a lot of reactions. Right. But what do those reactions truly mean? after that post is right. done or after that video has been right. shared. After you done said your words, then what's next? Mm-hmm. I think about it often like this, like how do we combat this? How do we elevate and lift up the world, the world, the worlds of black women, girls, and those who identify with the black feminine. How do we lift up those worlds is by having a deep fucking breath before we open our damn mouths. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Having a response that is actually tied to an action. It means yeah. also being able to understand that the way this is impacting a person is complex Being able to hold complexity in some way, shape, or form. I think all of those things are tools that we have to cultivate to be able to truly start enlivening the conversation around justice for Black women, girls, and those who identify with the Black feminine. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I don't know about you. Like, I've been thinking, I couldn't sleep a lot last night thinking about Brittany Griner and nine years in a Russian jail. And and then I immediately saw Amon Schumpert, who did the same thing on U.S. Mm-hmm. soil. And I'm like, OK, I don't I don't want to think about the comparison. Mm-hmm. I know what to expect from Russia. And I mean, there's so many layers to even the Brittany Griner because she is mm-hmm. a pawn mm-hmm. and it is completely political. Mm-hmm. They don't care. Not one they bit about get, that. weed. They not don't care. One bit. They don't go down. They don't care. But they know that she's a black woman. And where she falls on the hierarchy and the fact that she is queer Mm -hmm. and, you know, and all these other things, it just is like one more layer of, oh, we can put her further and further on the pole of, we don't give it. Exactly. Like, let that be Tom Brady. And do with. Right. Let that be Michael Jordan. Let that be LeBron James. Let that be, let that be Megan Rapino. I mean, Mm. let's, let's just get in it. Right. It's just like, let's get in it. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's no one even. And it's like, it's again, a lot of lip service. And I'm talking all the way up in our political arena. Oh, it's unacceptable. Oh, it's this. But when push comes to shove, her presence and getting her back mm-hmm. home had to be attached to something else to make it even exactly viable. to make folks actually be like, Oh, we've got to do something right. Because or we've got, or we have a plan. There's no care about a black woman in a Russian gulag. There's really no, the, none. They... none. And she's not, she's not um, the visual feminine. Exactly. She's not all, all the, the markers soft and looking. She's not all of those things. And so it's like, it makes it even easier to be like, mm, not right. so much or, oh, we'll get to it. Or it's important because that's what we're supposed to say. But you had to attach another white exactly station to her situation. In order to elevate it to order the point to of, make let's it have even... a diplomatic conversation about doing right. an exchange. 
think about that. Right. If that isn't massage and And it had to be a two for one. Oh. It's two for it was a two for one. So really her it was if you want to make it what it is, you had to add something to it because she was already a zero. Exactly. In order to make that exchange, you had to add another another presence, another body, just happens to be a white man, to another white man for white man exchange. Right. And, and she, she just, just has to, to be a, tap, a ta- tap along with it. She's like tag along. Oh yeah, and why right. was she in this black woman? That's cool too. It's just like that right. like massage noir is not being able to garner a true ass response to this particular injustice, right? No. For the sake of Brianna, for the sake of Brittany, right? For yeah. the sake of her complexity, complex personhood. No, you had to attach right. something else to it. If that doesn't tell you, right? If that it is speaks <laughs> volumes, how. Volumes. how massage and works and how media mediated massage and like the massage that's happening in media consumption and media making in our mediated landscape yeah. we see it just right. play out right now i've not seen yeah. the response is paltry <laughs> paltry. not even lukewarm yeah. not even like not even tepid it's just like mm. mm-hmm it's like one of those things like okay so you said words but what was that meaning because what I heard didn't really land in terms of meaning anything to me so if it didn't mean anything to me and I am not in a situation I'm not even invest like heavily invested into this because it's not my family I can only imagine I literally can only imagine how her wife must Mm -hmm. feel her family must feel because my thing is that meant nothing to me unacceptable it was unacceptable Four months yeah, ago. Exactly. That was unacceptable. This right here is just laughable mm-hmm. in the worst kind mm-hmm. of way. The worst kind of way. So the fight for black women's liberation <laughs> must explicitly focus on eradicating racialized sexism if it's ever to be effective in freeing for more than the privileged few. Right. Are there any other resources you recommend for our listeners who are interested in this type of advocacy work centrally or peripherally? Mm, Gosh, I think one of the things that there's a there's a couple of different avenues that you can take if you're sort of thinking about, well, how do I understand mediated massage noir a little better? There are these two books um, that I think are very well, one, read my book. Yeah. I was like, yours Hold is on. the first, the first book. Is it's called <laughs> Mediated Massage Noir: Erasing Black Women and Girls' Innocence in the Public Imagination. Read that by Dr. Kylie But yeah, that's me. So that's the first. <laughs> that's the first. But there are a couple of in- other like interesting resources out there. So Moria Bailey's book, um, Massage Noir Transform, and and their particular look at these digital spaces of Black women and femmes like fighting back and using digital spaces to right. fight back. Really good text. There's also a book that I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying called Race After Technology. And mm. it is looks at, um, it, it sort of builds a bit off of Sophia Noble's um, Algorithms of Oppression, where she was really mm-hmm. looking at how the algorithm of Google and its search engine was uh oppressive to black women like black women's algorithmic mm-hmm. oppression this other book race after technology is talks a little bit more about how the surveillance aspects of blackness in a digital space so i think that's a really okay. good book um the um there's another interesting book if you're thinking about activism it's called from memes to movements 
that looks okay. at how what digital activism does or doesn't do and how it's sort of grown. Mm-hmm. And it's not specific just to like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. It also looks at the Arab Spring, which is one of the first kind of spaces where the digital was used for activism. I think that's a really, right. really good book as well. So I think about those particular texts as really important to understanding the mediated landscape in which massage noir kind of lives. But I also okay. think that folks need to delve into black women's histories and activisms, uh, activism around sexual and gender-based violence, right? Right, right. Uh, reading The Dark Side of the Street, where you're looking at the how the w- black women's activism around sexual and gender-based violence laid the foundation for like the modern civil rights movement. Like looking mm-hmm. at the ways that black liberation of black women and girls and black femmes is central and always have been central to any other kind of liberatory ethos. Right. So investigating yeah. those kinds yeah. of things um, might be helpful in your beginning conversation around massage noir in a mediated space. Yeah, there you got it. You have a reading list. They will be in the show notes. So if you want to know what you can do. <laughs> crack that book open all right so Kalima any parting words of wisdom for our listeners Mm, I'm gonna give two two little parting words okay I love it okay I live I live in this concept of friction which is um environmental activist Anna Zing like I read that book her book called friction and it just blew my brain open in my in my uh, graduate program but she lays out this idea and I like to give it to folks one stick alone is just a stick When you rub two sticks together, you create heat and light. In the spaces that feel most frictive, you can get some of the most productive work done. Mm -hmm. And I like to think about that in one, when there's friction that's happening, it allows you to invite other people to the table in an interesting way. Um, And then it's okay to feel bad, but you still got to do work. Mm -hmm. Like we got to sit in things that are uncomfortable. If you are being triggered by something, investigate the trigger, right? So I think that's one thing. It's like this desire to, I'm just going to speak on something and run away is not doing justice to you or anybody that you're trying to serve by speaking on it. So be okay sitting in spaces of uncomfortable. And then the other thing is to truly understand that... There's no such thing as a binary or a single issue movement. Like I like to lead with like Mm. Audre Lorde's kind of conversation where she says, there are no single issue movements because we don't have single issue lives. Ooh, yes. Facts. Facts. So as you are feeling something, as you're watching Injustice against uh, Brittany Griner, as you're consuming massage noir, like understand and look for the layers that are informing what's going on and how you actually respond it. Just take a breath and respond, not react. And also examine how you uphold those in your own Every life damn day. In ways that you're not conscious Every of. damn day. Yeah, we're all guilty. Yeah. You know, we're divine yeah. we're divine beings having a human experience. So mm-hmm. afford yourself some grace for the places where you mess up. And then do better. There you have it. 
Mic drop. Do better. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thank Young. You. And we'll see you yes, other Yes, yes, yes. Much love. All right. And now it's wine time. Whether you're a wine aficionado or enthusiast, or merely wine curious, this segment is for you. Some of the best conversations, like the one I just had, occur over a glass of wine with great company. And if you don't imbibe at all, cheers to your health, wellness, and healing too. This week, we're talking about sangria. Traditional sangria, a wine-based cocktail, is one of Spain's most popular yet misunderstood beverages. The irony? Tourists love it, and locals barely even drink it, opting for a simpler tinto de verano. Sangria, coming from sangre, meaning blood, alludes to the ideal color of the drink. So how did sangria come to be? Water wasn't always safe to drink along the Iberian Peninsula, so common practice was to fortify it by adding some alcohol to kill off the bacteria. The first sangrias were a product of this practice, a mix of wine, water, herbs, and spices. To me, sangria is simply a deliciously sweet red wine punch. Whenever I go to a tapas bar, this is what I order. As a purist, I don't like too much deviation from the classics, and I will talk about some ways to change it up in a bit. So let's start with the key ingredients. Obviously, red wine. Usually a young and fruity table wine that you would drink on its own, but not too complex or expensive, and try to avoid oak varietals. Five of my favorites are Garnacha, Trace Picos's Bodegas Bursao, Tempranillo, La Bendimia's Palacio Tremondo, Zinfandel, Dancing Bull's Rancho Sabaco, Bornarda, Catena from Alamos, and Nero Avola, Catin Barbera. Next, you want to add the citrus fruit, which is the lemon and the orange, and these are the key ingredients, and you just peel the rinds and juice the fruit. Next is the spice, or the, is the cinnamon stick. Sugar, and I prefer in the form of simple syrup. Soda, which is optional, and also optional is Spanish brandy. So here's where you can change things up. Some people use white wine instead of red wine, but to me, if it's not red, it's not really sangria. In terms of the citrus fruit, you can also add peach, apricot, or green apple. And when you use the herbs and spices, you can also add or subtract ginger, star anise, nutmeg, and cloves. For the sugar component, you can also use agave nectar. And again, for the soda component, you can use tonic water, club soda, or lemon-lime soda. For the Spanish branding, it does pack more of a punch, but you can also use vermouth. Classic sangria is not very high in alcohol, less than a glass of wine, as it's simply diluted wine. Adding hard alcohol like brandy or vermouth brings up the alcohol content. Making sangria in advance enhances the flavors. When I make it at home, I make it the night before, I intend to serve it, which gives the fruit plenty of time to integrate, macerate, and release their flavors. If you so choose, you can add club soda, tonic water, or lemon-lime soda for carbonation immediately before serving. Some of my favorite tapas pairings are spinach and chickpeas, shrimp and garlic, fried eggplant and honey, sesame cheese puffs and honey, almond-coated fried goat cheese, and of course, empanadas. So before the summer ends, 
hit up your favorite tapas bar, enjoy a picture or two, or make some at home to entertain your guests. Salud. Thanks for joining Women's Health Wisdom and Wine. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life. Also, remember to follow us, review us, and give us five stars. Till we meet again, remember, nourish your flourish.